Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Priscilla so boldly declared, and uh, I have the privilege of continuing our series in Luke, which is which is called Tales from the Empty Crypt. No, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's called Tables and Sinners. And uh, last week Neil preached on the passage where uh, Jesus was confronted by some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, and he was talking about the Sabbath, and um, um, do you want me to switch? I'll just carry on. If it doesn't work, then I can switch. And uh, now we're at the place where Jesus has finished that confrontation with the, uh, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Uh, and then he begins uh, what is well known as either the Sermon on the Mount or Plain, depending on kind of where Jesus was saying this at the time. And most of us are familiar with what is called the Sermon on the Mount. We studied it when uh, we went through the book of Matthew. And he's proclaiming the new kingdom of God. He's also demonstrating the new kingdom of God by healing all varieties of illnesses and ailments and oppressions. And we continue to the point at which, in um, he, uh, we continue to the point at which the centurion comes to Jesus and asks for his servant to be healed. Now, remember what's important is the centurion represented the kind of oppressive nature and the fact that, uh, that the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans, and yet Jesus decided that he was going to heal the centurion. A widow comes to Jesus and asks um, for her son to be healed, and he reaches out in those days to what was the lowest strata of society and decides to heal her. Should I just swap? And so what happens is we pick up uh, at that story. Now, Luke in his historical narrative of Jesus, introduces us to a man called John the Baptist right at the beginning of his gospel. We haven't heard much about John the Baptist until this point. We know that he was put in prison by Herod, who's like a puppet king of the Roman Empire. So we know that that's where he is. We don't hear about him until this portion of Scripture. And we're reading in Luke 7 from 18 to 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. What are they reporting to Jesus? Everything that Jesus has been doing, they've now reported to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour... He healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and on many, and, and on many who, who were blind, He bestowed sight. And He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the, de- the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, we'll remember that when Jesus took out the scroll from Isaiah in Luke 4 and said what the purpose of His ministry was, it is almost an exact copy of what He's saying here to John, with one very important exclusion in the fact that in the Isaiah Scripture, 
it continues towards judgment, and that the Messiah would be responsible for bringing judgment. But when Jesus reads it in Isaiah, he doesn't read that portion. And when he tells John, yes, I am the Messiah, he doesn't read that judgment portion. Now, it's clear that John has certain expectations that are not being met here. Now, expectations are tricky and dangerous things. Um, you know, we, we, we are sometimes aware of our expectations. When, when I was turning 21, which was many years ago, uh, when I was turning 21, uh, Karen said to me, I'm going to take you out. And my expectations were super high. So I dressed up, and I, I looked really cool. I had a jacket on, and I didn't have more than, like, one jacket. I had nice slacks on. And, uh, and so I went, and I, and I picked her up, and she was wearing sweatpants, sneakers, a T-shirt, and her hair was in a ponytail. And I was like, okay. Um, so far, my expectations are not being met. I was thinking we were going to go to an amazing restaurant, and um, so we go into this like dark place where there's like um, like a park, and I was like, okay, I know that there's a restaurant here, but it's a terrible restaurant. <laughs> what are we doing here? And I, I couldn't help but like just just ask. So, so where are we going? You know. And she's like, it's a surprise. I'm like, am I going to like the surprise? Because right now I'm not sure that I'm going to like the surprise. Um, you know, I feel a little overdressed for the surprise. You know. Anyway, as it turns out, what she'd done is she'd organized for a bunch of friends of ours, and we had a candlelight picnic uh, in the middle of the park for my 21st. So, yes, of course, she did a great job. It's Karen, you know. The problem with our expectations is we continue to raise them. Like, um, the Dodgers are about to overtake the Giants in the NL West race, that's right, okay? And it reminded me of a friend of mine who always, always, without fail, raises the level of my expectations when it comes to food. Because he's like, we're gonna go to Philippe's and we're going to get the best sandwich in the world. And I was like, Man, were my expectations dashed when I walked in there. I don't know if you guys have had Philippe's sandwich, but the idea is that, that you're like, you, it's a steak sandwich. They actually dip it in the French dip for you. You don't even get to dip your own dip. It's like single dip or double dip. My expectations were set super high. The other problem is when we don't know that we have expectations. And, and sometimes we don't think we have expectations, but we do. The other day I walked into my house and I saw Karen. She was writing down this list. And the list said, list of things to do. And on the top of the list was a hike to Griffith Observatory. And I was like, oh, cool. When are we going to the Griffith Observatory? She's like, that's not for you. I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, you know, my, my expectations were dashed, you know. We have either a cynical view of expectations or the naive view. And the cynical view is, uh, is, is probably closer to mine. Sylvia Plath tells us that if you expect nothing from someone, you are never disappointed. You know, that's, that's the cynical view. The, there's the naive view that, that if you have high expectations and belief in people, this leads to high performance. So very often, belief creates fact. So if, if I have a high expectation that 
either my performance or the performance of my coworkers is, is going to reach that. Now, the truth is somewhere in between. The challenge for us is that we are constantly dealing with what I call the reality expectation pain gap. So the amount of pain you want to experience is directly related to how high your expectations are and what the actual reality is of that person, of that event, of that meal, of whatever it is. So have, if you have very high expectations and your reality is very low, the pain gap is high. You with me on that? Now, it's not necessarily just the fact that there's the, uh, the pain gap isn't just about the situation. Most of the time, the pain gap is about our relationships. So, for example, I've had people say the most offensive things to me when I'm driving the car, right? And as I'm sure you've had, or not, okay? <laughs> All pretend like you're great drivers. But, um, but when, when a stranger swears at you or offends you, the gap in terms of expectation reality is pretty low. You know, I don't know who this person is. I don't know why I upset them. Clearly, they're having a bad day, and so you just kind of fob it off. If your husband or wife says the same thing to you, that someone in traffic said to you, what's going to happen? Well, that gap is much bigger, right? Because you have an expectation that that is not how you should be treated. And the reality of the way in which you're being treated produces that amount of pain. Now, pastorally, one of the biggest issues that we've had to deal with is not necessarily the fact that the injury is severe in terms of unmet expectations, but it's, it's who is actually not meeting that expectation. And most of the time, it isn't the fact of whether it was a meal or whether it was a party or whether it was whatever it was. It is the who that has caused us most of the amount of pain. And so we see in this passage that Jesus apparently fails to meet these expectations, but Jesus also exposes people's expectations, and then he also confronts their expectations. And so we're going to be looking at that. Jesus failed to meet John's expectations on two levels. He failed to meet them on the personal level and on the national and corporate level. Now, I think we can confidently say that when John is in prison, he's confused, he's disappointed, he's fearful, he's in pain, because prisons weren't fun back then. They're not fun now, but they certainly weren't fun back then. And, and we know that he has the potential to be offended. We also know that John is not in prison for his own stupidity. We know that he's in prison because he's doing what God called him to do, which is to preach the coming of the kingdom, to prepare the way for the Messiah. So it's right that he's confused. But I would say there's some unstated questions that John is asking. We know the actual question that he's asking, are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? But I would say that there's some unstated questions that he's asking that we probably ask in this context. I think one of the questions that John was asking in that context was, Jesus, do you know where I am, and what are you going to do about it? Jesus, do you know where I am, and what are you going to do about it? I think that's a valid question when you're in prison. I think it's a valid question when you have been told by God, and it's been ratified by Jesus, that you are the voice, the prophet, the one crying in the wilderness. Now that the Messiah has come, you're in prison. This is confusing. This is not matching my expectations. But I think that there's a deeper question. I think the other unstated question is, I don't think that John was having a pity party because having a pity party is not consistent with this man's character. We know he was a hard man. 
Uh, we know that he lived out in the desert on locusts and dressed in camel hair. Uh, we know that he had no problem with confrontation. But I think there's a deeper question that John is asking beyond the question of, Jesus, do you know where I am? And what are you doing about it? I think the other question that he's asking is, did I waste my life? Because we know, unfortunately, there's not a good ending to the story. And we know that John was beheaded by Herod. We know that he ended his life in prison. But there isn't a sense in me in which I pick up this, this pity part. I feel like John really wants to know, I am prepared for these sacrifices. I just want to know that these sacrifices are worthwhile. I want to know that I didn't waste my life. And I feel like sometimes when our expectations are not met by Jesus or apparently not met by Jesus, just like my expectations were apparently not met by Corinne when she arrived in sweatpants and a ponytail, the reality is this, is that we, we may be in our prison and we're asking Jesus this question, do you know where I am and what are you doing about it? And maybe those of us that have been in a place where we have sacrificed and we have lived a life that is worthy of the call and we have done what Jesus has asked us to do and it hasn't worked out in the way that we have expected and we're not necessarily having a pity party, but we're asking the question, was it worth it? Did I waste my life? There's also the national corporate expectations that weren't being met. Because in John 1, John looks at Jesus and he says to, John, to his disciples, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that John knew exactly who Jesus was. But we also know that his expectations were a little off. So John is preaching about an axe that will come and be laid at the root. John is preaching about a baptism of fire. John is preaching about judgment and the winnowing fork. And John is sitting there in prison thinking to himself, where is the axe? Where is the winnowing fork? Where is the fire? Where is the judgment on the people that are opposed to the purposes of God? And Jesus redirects his view of the kingdom. The blind see, the lame walk, and those that are poor are no longer excluded from the kingdom. John did not realize that salvation, grace, and mercy would come before the judgment. The judgment of the, the Messiah will come when the lamb returns as a lion. But right now, there is space for us to experience the grace and the mercy to be able to repent before the lamb and before the lion comes in judgment. Now, understand that an incomplete understanding is not an incorrect one. And John just had an incomplete understanding of what the Messiah was doing, not an incomplete one. I think sometimes we look at the church or our church, we look at what is happening, and this does not look like what we pictured the people of God to look like. We look at the church, and this does not look like the promises of Jesus. We look at the church, and this does not look like a people that love and are engaged in the world that stand as a set-apart nation but are still reaching out for the common good of the people around us. We continue in the Scripture where Jesus exposes the fact that they did actually have expectations. So when John's messages had gone, so John's disciples came, asked the question, Jesus responded. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What is he saying? Did you go see a soft, manipulable man? No. What you saw was a strong man. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No. You saw a strict, hard man. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury 
own king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, I don't know. I don't know why Jesus didn't say these things while John's disciples were still present. So look at the flow of this, right? John's disciples come, and, and his last words to the disciples are, and blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Once they leave, he basically tells us that there is no human being that is greater than John, born of a woman. Could he not have told the disciples that? They at least would have gone back to John and said, Jesus said, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame are walking, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. And he said, there is no greater man that has lived other than John, but the first shall be last and the last shall That would have been cool, right? In our prison, sometimes all we want to hear is an affirming word. All we want to hear is this, I know where you are, I know what I'm doing, and thank you for what you're doing. And it seems in this case that John didn't hear that. Now, was Jesus, with, was, was Jesus withholding that on purpose? I don't, I don't believe so. But I think sometimes when our expectations are not met, we need to at least admit that what would make it a little bit easier is having that kind of verbal affirmation. But the more important thing is that Jesus exposes the fact that we have expectations. You went out into the desert. It's like, what were you thinking, bro? You went into the desert. Were you, were you going to find a soft man kind of reclining on pillows and and kind of spewing these pearls of wisdom? No, that's not what you found in John. You found a prophet that was bold and declarative, that was saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was saying, what are you doing here, Pharisees, brood of vipers, because your repentance is not real. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And how does that connect with us? Because Jesus, the Scriptures, and John are never vague about the path to life being narrow and difficult. There is not a vague expectation here. Anytime someone is called into relationship with Jesus, there is an expectation of difficulty. That's why Jesus talks in Luke of carrying your cross. That's why Jesus talks about losing your life. That's why Jesus talks about a difficult time. And so what Jesus is saying to these guys is, what, what were you expecting? Were you expecting a softer message? No, that's not why you went out into the desert. And so I think sometimes what happens is that we've, we've forgotten the unambiguous sacrificial language of the Savior. Leave everything and follow me. Leave everything and follow me. Pay the ultimate price for a pearl that you don't know its value now because its value will be appropriate in the new kingdom. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. But throughout Luke, and we will get there, there is this consistent saying, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the midst of a difficult life because it's that difficult life that enables us through the Holy Spirit to express righteousness, peace, and joy. Then Jesus confronts our expectations. In verse 31, he says this, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. 
The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It's, it's uh, interesting that Jesus indirectly insults the people by calling them children, because He's calling them immature and fickle, because that's exactly what He's showing. And sometimes what happens is, if we listen, the message of John is too harsh. It's too uncompromising. It's too difficult. There's too much truth, not enough grace, and there's not enough love. So there's a sense in which he's saying, well, well, you know, we played a happy song for you, you di- we played a dirge for you, you didn't mourn. We play a happy song for you, the message of Jesus is too inclusive, it's too sloppy, it's too easy, it's too cheap. And so oftentimes we have this, um, this balance that we're trying to live out in terms of truth, uh, in terms of, of grace and truth. Or there's this message of John the baptizer, the strong, uncompromising message, and this message of Jesus that we think are in competition with each other, but are not in competition with each other. We never were in competition with each other because Jesus is as strong and as uncompromising as John was as loving and as kind as anyone we will ever experience. Jesus is the epitome, John the the disciple says this, in Him the fullness of grace and truth lived. So, Jesus continues, and the challenge that we have is, okay, we have these expectations that haven't been met, and uh, Jesus hasn't met some of our expectations. He's exposed the fact that Maybe some of the expectations that we've had are either unbiblical or unrealistic. And He does show us that, that we do walk through life with, with a set of blinders on based on our expectations. Now, expectations with God are different from expectations with people. And Pete Scazzaro, who's written a whole series on emotionally healthy, says that, that in order for your expectations, in order for you to have kind of a good relationships with people, your expectations need to be verbal. In other words, people need to know that you have those expectations. They need to be agreed upon. Uh, just because I have an expectation of you doesn't mean that it should, it should happen. They need to be realistic, um, and they need to be conscious. So, conscious, realistic, spoken, and agreed upon. The challenge is with God. We don't get to sit down with a powwow and say, so now, God, let's talk about this expectation you have of me. I don't think it's that realistic. I think you should just give me some grace, because that's what we always call it, right? Anytime we don't want to apply our lives to the strict meaning of the gospel, we, we, we ask for grace. And actually, we say, let's, um, let's do that. How many of you have had a verbal response from God saying, sure, that'd be fine? No, no one? No, we don't. But the challenge is, is we, when we look at the gospel, we see this. A life that is marked by grace because we've stepped into something we don't deserve, that is empowered by grace because of the Holy Spirit that enables us to live in the way that God has called us to live, and a life that gives grace to others. And so instead of doing that, what, what maybe we've got to ask ourselves is, how do I deal with these disappointments in terms of my expectations not being met with God? I think the first thing is that you've got to admit that you're disappointed, you know, and, and just admitting to God that you're angry with Him or disappointed or confused or you don't understand does not mean 
that you are faithless. In fact, I would venture to say that it means that you have more faith in Him because you are trusting Him to be a companion on this road. And so the most important thing, and I'm so glad John did this, I'm pretty sure that if he wasn't in prison, he would have walked up to Jesus saying, Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? But what he did was the next best thing, and he sent his disciples and he says, go and ask Jesus. My question is, do we? When we are disappointed, do we go and ask Jesus? Do we say, God, I thought you were good, but... God, I thought you were kind. God, I thought you were in control, but should I look for another? Some of you are like, I can't talk to God like that. The reality is your soul is already talking to God like that. So when you, when you verbalize that and when you take it to Jesus, what happens is you are allowing Jesus to speak back to you. Just like Jesus spoke back to John. When we take our disappointment directly to Jesus, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't go through our friends. I mean, John used disciples because he was practically in a place where he couldn't speak to Jesus face to face. But sometimes we need to do that. We need to ask ourselves, am I disappointed and am I expressing that to the only one that can help me with this disappointment? We need to expose. So firstly, admit our disappointment to God. Secondly, we need to expose the condition of our soul. Now, we know that there's a lot of stuff going on under the surface. Even if we know what we're angry about, and even if we know why we're angry, there's a lot of stuff happening. I don't know that John would have been in this kind of mood if he wasn't in prison. If his circumstances weren't the kind of circumstances that they were, I don't know that he would have been in this mood. Sometimes our emotions and our circumstances make our disappointment so much worse. And so one of the things we've got to do is take time alone with God and actually look at our lives in a broader sense and say, what else is going on with me? I remember talking to a good friend of mine, and I went to him and I said, I I need you to know a couple things before I tell you what I'm struggling with. Right now, I'm very angry and I'm very suspicious. And so I need you to be able to filter what you're hearing from me knowing that I'm angry and suspicious. And so I'm also giving you permission to say, Nick, I think that's your anger and suspicion talking or your pain talking. Does that make sense? So when we go to each other for help, in order to uncover and expose our souls, let's at least take what we do know. I didn't know exactly what was going on. I didn't know exactly what I was feeling or even the prayer that I needed in that moment. But when I went to this man and I said to him, these are the things that I know I'm struggling with right now. He was at least in a better position to be able to say to me, yes, that thing that you're experiencing is real, but it's being made much worse by the fact that you're angry and suspicious right now. And let's take that to God and let's see what he has to say about that. Sound good, Tom? We take it to God? There we go. Thirdly, we have to reorient Jason, Travis. They made fun of me because I used reorientate, which is a British term for the same word. We have to reorient your expectations. Okay, Paul Tripp says this, we live in a world of violence and war. Surely not the handiwork of the Prince of Peace. We live in a world where lust and greed motivate hearts, not what God intended for the heart to do. We live in a world where all of these things touch all of our lives and complicate our ministries. He's talking to preachers here. No relationship is free of disappointment. No institution, including the church, is totally free of sin and corruption. 
No location is free of difficulty. No moment in our lives or ministries exist untouched by the fall. Now, we know that to be a truth, and we have to manage that when we reorient our expectations. Now, remember right at the beginning, you are probably prone to one of the two ways of setting expectations. You are probably maybe a cynic. If you don't expect anything, you can't be disappointed. Or maybe you are consistently that person that says, but if I believe in you, and if I speak that belief in you, and this is not like you, and yet you keep treating me the same way. And one of the things that we've got to ask God for, by the grace of the Holy Spirit and with mature Christians around us, is, is this a valid expectation? Can I expect this from God? Can I expect this from my husband? Can I expect this from my wife? Can I expect this from my coworkers? I remember sitting with a business person and saying to, to, to them, you will never get the same kind of buy-in from your workers as you will, as you have for yourself, because you're a business owner and they are workers. Now, that might be a cynical view. I mean, maybe it is a cynical view. You can motivate them. You can have all the vision stories you want, but you're an owner and they are workers. And so you have to kind of reassess your expectation of them. The problem is that we live in this dichotomy of common grace where even though we live in a broken world with broken people, there is such potential for goodness, for humility, for joy, and generosity. But we need to be able to say to God, God, protect my heart from being cynical, but protect me from just being too open. Jesus says later on, he says, I want you to be like doves and as gentle as doves and as wise as serpents. And there's a sense in which we are consistently being told there is a wisdom in the Holy Spirit that we can access for each and every circumstance to be able to realign our expectations of people, of the church, of the government, of friends, of spouses. This is a challenge. Is the list of expectations you have of someone else at least half as long as the list they have of you? In other words, if you have this list of expectations for someone to be your friend, do you meet at least half of those expectations in friendship to someone else? As a husband, as a wife, if you have expectations of, of your spouse in friendship, are those expectations valid? Admit that you have those expectations so God can reorder them. And please, don't reorder your expectations in a place of pain. When you've been let down by someone, that is not the right time to say, okay, let's reorder expectations. If God has let you down, if you perceive God has let you down, if people have let you down, you need some space, you need to talk to some mature Christian leaders, not soul cheerleaders. Soul cheerleaders are important, but not when it comes to reorientating your expectations of other people. Don't take the bait of offense. You know, we do this, we globalize unmet expectations, and we minimize the surprises. I mean, there are many, many times, many more times where Karen has exceeded my expectations. The fact that she's still with me has exceeded my expectations, <laughs> right? And yet, when I'm in a place of pain, what do I think about the most? Those unmet expectations. You think about what God has done for you. 
You think about the fact that He's rescued you from sin and shame, given you a purpose. And yet in that moment, in that dark place, all you can think about is that one moment where He didn't. We will either despair, because this is what offense is, we will either despair or we'll become suspicious. And we'll forget in our moment of clarity like John had, because we're in the darkness of the prison. You know, the Israelites, um, they told Moses, you know, we're too afraid of God, so, so you go up into the mountain and you talk to God and you tell us what He said. And Moses took a long time. And so what happened is that they, um, they took all their gold jewelry and they threw it in the furnace and Aaron made what's, uh, what was a golden calf. Do you remember that story? Do you remember what Aaron said to Moses when Moses came back and he was a little miffed that Aaron had done that? Well, Aaron said to him, Aaron said to him, we just threw the stuff into the furnace and out came this, out came this calf, right? Out came this golden calf. Talk about an inability to take ownership of decisions you've made, right? This is the problem with us when it comes to our expectations. When our expectations are not met, we take our image of God, we throw it into the furnace of frustration, and we remake God in terms of the way in which we can understand Him, the way in which we can handle Him, or the way in which we can blame Him. I'm going to say that again. When we're in a place of despair because our expectations have not been met, we take what we understand of God, we throw it into the furnace of our frustration, and we wait to see what pops out. And whatever pops out is usually better because I can blame it, or I can understand it better, or I can handle it better. My thing is, wait for God. What the Israelites didn't do in that moment is Moses said, wait here. I'm going to hear from God when I come back. He's going to be clear about what His expectations of you are and how you are to respond. So wait in that place. Band, you can come up. So Nick, what are some valid expectations we can have? So here are some valid expectations that we can expect from one another as a called out community of grace. Ephesians 4 verse 14 says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves that carry about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into, into him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint is equipped when each part is working properly. This makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want to say that we should, and these are valid expectations of each other, that we should have expectations of each other in this community that we are mature and not deceived by the world, that we are speaking the truth in love, that we are a people that are focused on the head of the body, but still understand that it is important to be connected to the body and that we have a part to play in this body and that ultimately we are growing up in love, in love for one another, in love for Him, in love for the world. What expectations can we confidently have of Jesus? We can confidently know that we have freedom from sin and shame and from destructive self-autonomy. We can have an expectation that not only has He rescued us, but He's given us purpose. We can have this expectation that trials and tribulation come with unexpected joy and peace in the midst of them. Why? Because of His promise, I am with you until the end of the age.
Why can we handle this? Because we know His character. Why can we handle this? Because we know this world is not all there is. Jesus says, I've said these things to you so that you may have peace in me. In the world you will have distress, but be encouraged because I have conquered the world. Our hopeful expectation rests on the willing presence and suffering and victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hopeful expectation rests on His character and His nature, that Jesus has rescued us from the foulest form of suffering, which is separation from God, and He's rescued us from the inescapable expectation and reality that otherwise we would be alone, judged, shameful, and in separation. Prior to our union with Jesus, we had a very valid expectation that we would be separate from Him and in no way able to atone for our sin, in no way of being able to be healed from the pain that has been perpetrated on us, the, the abuse and shame that we suffered at the hands of others. Now, as we carry our cross, Mercy Commons, and as we experience pain, as we live in these prisons of confusion and unmet expectations, where we are surrounded by seemingly how impotent we are and how the kingdom of God is, we can also know this, that we have everlasting joy and peace because Jesus promised, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can have a supernatural peace because we know that in the midst of our confusion and unmet expectation, He has promised that He is there. Amen. Thank you, Nick. Um, someone came in and uh, Tony came and shared a word that uh, really felt like it lined up with something that I was feeling as well, that uh, there may be a number of us in here uh, that are holding kind of anxious, just anxious hearts, something before God, something the, the, the things that Nick has shared has maybe landed on you in a different way. And um, I want to speak specifically to anyone in here that your expectation of God is that what you'll get from Him is anger. And I'm here to tell you that is not, that is not what he will give to you. We have a table that's here. It's in the back and two on the side. We're going to respond as a church to take communion. We're going to come to the table where we have received grace upon grace, where the body of Jesus was broken for us and his blood was spilled for us. So if you your expectation of whatever you're holding is that you're going to get a backhand. Jesus took all the backhands for us from, from the world, from sin, from all of it. That's not what, that's not what, that's not our inheritance. That's not what God is like. And I want you to be free to go to the table and talk to him. Admit where you're at and receive what he gives to you. For, for the rest of us, maybe there's something that landed with you on how you're holding some type of an expectation. As Nick said, it's like, you know, we've got to be free to, to talk to God directly about what's going on and meet him in reality. Before we take communion, I'm going to kind of dismiss us. The band is going to play. I'm going to dismiss us to grab communion. I want you to hold it. I want you to take communion on your own. 
right? But I want, I want you to take time to talk to God specifically about whatever it is. That maybe you're holding a frustration. Maybe you're holding a fear. Admit it. Confess it. Talk to him about it. And wait for just a second to see if he says something back to you. Because sometimes he will. Oftentimes he will. And if he hasn't, you're still holding a tangible reality of what he has already done and what he continues to speak over us. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.